Welcome to the CEC Report for the 3rd of March 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is our Victoria State Chairman, Jeremy Beck. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're discussing the Liberal Economic Order is unravelling. Join the effort to replace it, Australia. And secondly, Australia needs a new bank, but not a green one. So firstly today, the Liberal Economic Order is unravelling. Join the effort to replace it, Australia. Now, we've been talking on the show for a while now about the unprecedented potential turning point happening in the world right now, where you've had a whole series of uh, elections and referenda and so forth that are showing that the people are waking up because they want change. Now, this was reflected in a very interesting way a couple of weeks ago when the Munich Security Conference held its annual gathering on the 17th to the 19th of February in Germany. Uh, and this is an event um, that is dominated by NATO countries, by the West and so forth, although other nations are represented there also. And it's a discussion of global security issues. But they produced this year a discussion paper which was rather interesting. It was titled Post-Truth, Post-West, Post-Order. And it said that the world is facing an illiberal, illiberal moment. Across the West and beyond, illiberal forces are gaining ground. And it went on to describe the resounding rejection of the status quo at recent election and referenda over 12 months saying that populist parties now assert significant control and influence, even in countries where they're not actually themselves in power. And it says that populists have formed an axis of fear, exploiting the insecurities and the grievances of the people by wielding half-truths and outright lies as a weapon. And as a result, they conclude the open international economic order may be unravelling. Shock horror. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually very good news. But just to explain before we go into a bit more detail, what do they mean by liberalism in this context, Jeremy? Liberalism is the ideology of the freedom of the individual versus the collective rights of society. So the individual, if you're a billionaire, you've, you've got full freedom to do whatever you want, to screw the population. In effect, that's the way it works. Mm. And the government mm. basically has to, its job is mm. to ensure, if you mm. believe in government, some libertarians of course mm. don't, but mm. to ensure that the people have that right to do whatever they want and markets are thus formed, free trade, etc. Um, but what I want to do is show some clips today because um, it'll make it more clear that we're not just saying this, mm. but it will show it from the horse's mouths. Um, so first of all, we're going to show Wolfgang Ischinger, and he's actually the chairman of the Munich Security Conference, and he was introducing this concept of the post-West order in this short clip. Post-truth, post-West, and post-order. What does it mean? Post-truth means we are dealing with a new level of fake news, of hybrid warfare, of using the digital world to disseminate information that is nothing but propaganda. Propaganda is not a new instrument in world politics, but the means by which it is disseminated today uh, is of course much more effective. Today, through social media, you can reach millions, many millions in a second with true or not so true information. So that's a new challenge for, for world peace, for stability, 
and for cooperation in the international system. The second item is, is uh, post-West. Are we entering an era of illiberalism where authoritarian governments are going to replace more and more traditional Western value-based democracies? Question mark. I think it is right for us to be concerned about this crisis, this decline of the West, the disappearance of the classic leadership nation of the West, the United States, and all of this together, post-truth and post-West, of course raises important questions about the international order in general. Is global governance coming apart at the seams? Do our international institutions work as they should be working? Look at the United Nations, look at NATO, look at the OSCE, which has desperately tried to help resolve the Ukraine conflict. Many questions regarding the stability of global governance, about the validity and the strength of the international system of global order. So these three items actually form the intellectual background against which we, uh, we've developed this year's Munich Security Report. So he warns here that authoritarian governments can replace Western democracies, but in their document they say this is the result of populism, a populist upheaval, and isn't this really happening, Jeremy, because of the economic crisis? Oh, exactly. I mean, look in the Western world, look in Europe, look in the United States, look here in Australia. The conditions for the bulk of the population are actually going backwards, and particularly for the poor, and even, oh, look, the middle class has been wiped out, versus look in China, millions of people are being lifted out of poverty and generally speaking people are advancing mm -hmm. or in other countries in in africa uh, you've got ethiopia where china's helping them build their railways and they've had enormous growth and people are lifting out of poverty here in the west we're going backwards and no wonder there's mm -hmm. a revolt that's why people are turning against it um, now we're going to show now uh, the response of Russia to this insanity at Munich and we'll show a clip from the Foreign Minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov. NATO expansion, I've already mentioned that, and we categorically disagree with those who accuse Russia and new emerging centres of influence in undermining the so-called global liberal world order. The crisis of the old model was predestined when the concept of political and economic globalization was conceived as an instrument for growth of an elite group of countries and uh, for those countries to dominate over others. This model cannot exist in the long run, and uh, now leaders have to make a responsible choice. I hope they will make their choice in favor of a fair and democratic world order. You can call it post-West if you want to, where every country based on its sovereignty and within international law will seek proper balance between its national interest and national interests of its partners, respecting their culture, history and their national identity. So he does the same. He fairly pins the blame on the liberal order for, you know, destroying itself because it functioned only for an elite club, a group of nations. Um, but he also expresses the desire for a new democratic and fair order and Russia's wish to collaborate with the United States. Uh, and he referred at the beginning of the speech, which we didn't show, to Putin's 
call in the same forum 10 years earlier uh, where Putin began by saying that international security requires going beyond military uh, issues and it requires the stability of the world economy, overcoming poverty, economic security and the development of a dialogue among civilizations. And he even quoted F F FDR. So we'll show a quick excerpt of that. Однако, что же такое однополярный мир? Как бы не украшали этот термин, он в конечном итоге означает на практике только одно. Это один центр власти, один центр силы, один центр принятия решения. Это мир одного хозяина, одного суверена. И это в конечном итоге губительно не только для всех, кто находится в рамках этой системы, но и для самого суверена, потому что разрушает его изнутри. И это ничего общего не имеет, конечно, с демократией, потому что демократия – это, как известно, власть большинства при учете интересов и мнения меньшинства. Вместе с тем, все, что происходит сегодня в мире, и сейчас мы только вот начали дискутировать об этом, это следствие попыток внедрения именно этой концепции в мировые дела, концепции однополярного мира. А какой результат? Односторонние, нелегитимные часто действия не решили ни одной проблемы. Более того, они стали генератором новых человеческих трагедий и очагов напряженности. Судите сами. Войн, локальных и региональных конфликтов меньше не стало. Господин Тельчик вот об этом очень мягко упомянул. И людей в этих конфликтах гибнет не меньше, а даже больше, чем раньше. Значительно больше. Значительно больше. Сегодня мы наблюдаем почти ничем не сдерживаемое, гипертрофированное применение силы в международных делах, военной силы. Силы, ввергающие мир в пучину следующих один за другим конфликтов. В результате не хватает сил на комплексное решение ни одного из них. Становится невозможным и их политическое решение. Мы видим все большее пренебрежение основополагающими принципами международного права. Больше того, отдельные нормы, да по сути чуть ли не вся система права одного государства, прежде всего, конечно, Соединенных Штатов, перешагнула свои национальные границы и, по сути, во всех сферах, и в экономике, и в политике, и в гуманитарной сфере, навязывается другим государствам. Ну, кому это понравится? Кому это понравится? В международных делах все чаще встречается стремление решить тот или иной вопрос, исходя из так называемой политической целесообразности, основанной на текущей политической конъюнктуре. И это, конечно, крайне опасно. И ведет к тому, что никто уже не чувствует себя в безопасности. Я хочу это подчеркнуть. Никто не чувствует себя в безопасности. Потому что никто не может спрятаться за международным правом, как за каменной стеной. Такая политика является, конечно, катализатором гонки вооружений. Доминирование фактора силы неизбежно подпитывает тягу ряда стран к обладанию оружием массового уничтожения. Больше того, появились принципиально новые угрозы, которые и раньше были известны, но сегодня приобретают глобальный характер, такие как терроризм. Убежден, мы подошли к тому рубежному моменту, когда должны серьезно задуматься над всей архитектурой глобальной безопасности. So 
Jeremy Putin, making perfect sense, mm -hmm. you know, which is why actually this was the point of the real demonization of Putin beginning from that uh, memorable speech. Mm. Well, you, you have a look in the, the post-Soviet era, the, the West, the neoconservatives, those from the former British Empire, which still exist to this day really in a different form, and the Anglo-American Empire, if you want to call it that, uh, thought that we can't have anyone dominating the world. We have to dominate the world. So, you know, the constant demonization of Russia is no surprise because Russia and also China uh, pose the biggest threat to this empire. And so all the countries that allied with, with Russia or the, the former Soviet Union, they were targeted for regime change, such as Iraq and Syria. So, you know, you've got a, an oligarchy that is now terrified mm. that they're losing grip of control again. Yeah, and they're not going to give up easily. And after this short break, we'll talk about what part of their plan is to try and maintain their control. Welcome back. We're discussing how the liberal economic order is unravelling, which is good news. Now, for more information, remember that you can call in and we'll send you a free copy of this, our Australian Alert Service, where all of this is written and documented um, so you can get the background that we can't, that we don't have time to discuss in detail here. Um, so we want to talk a bit about the efforts to, uh, for the Anglo-American Empire to maintain their control now. Um, and one of the things that Britain is planning as part of its post-Brexit strategy is to expand the Commonwealth as the basis of their maintaining and growing their control of world trade. Uh, and this month, the first ever Commonwealth trade ministers meetings will take place in London and this according to a government report will be about the UK championing free trade and driving forward liberalisation and the international rules based system. Um, now as part of that too there's an effort to recruit the United States uh, as a associate member of the Commonwealth. This is pretty wild basically this was put to Trump in December uh, by the British government um, and in fact they're doing this with many Commonwealth countries they're actually setting up branch offices of the Royal Commonwealth Society to try to enhance their reach extend their reach throughout the globe but of course regarding the United States it's, it's been since the American Revolution the dream of Britain to bring uh, the United States back into the fold this was the goal of the British Round Table and its spin-offs think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute of International Affairs, of which the RIIA, uh, we wrote a report in the New Citizen, uh, which we'll put up on the screen, of a 1995 report that they wrote about using the Commonwealth as a jump off point uh, to extend their trade at that point, but specifically focusing on Australia being the base point of extending the British control of trade throughout Asia. Uh, and it's interesting because there's a report that is promoting this entire new Commonwealth trade apparatus which was put out by the Free Enterprise Group and Tony Abbott, our former Prime Minister, wrote the introduction to it. He said, Brexit means that Britain is back, the country that gave the world the English language, common law and the mother of parliaments is once more to seize its destiny as a global leader. Of course, no two countries are more like-minded than Britain and Australia. We have a language, a set of values, and a large slab of history in common. And the report goes on to detail how the Commonwealth will be used by Britain to push 
worldwide trade liberalisation and tariff elimination. <laughs> and yet one or two days ago, Jeremy, Trump was just talking about protectionism again. Well, that's right. It was, it was only at the joint session that, that he had uh, an address lasting about an hour and he quoted Abraham Lincoln. Uh, we've got a clip there, so we'll watch this 30-second clip. I believe strongly in free trade, but it also has to be fair trade. It's been a long time since we had fair trade. The first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, warned that the abandonment of the protective policy by the American government will produce want and ruin among our people. Lincoln was right, and it's time we heeded his advice and his words. We've had these policies before, Elisa. I mean, look, this is how we built our nation through tariff protection. That's how the United States built their nation. Mm. And free trade is looted. Mm, that's right. And mm. protectionism has been shown historically. It's all documented to increase actual trade between mm. nations. Mm. Now, I want to come back to Australia because, you know, we have an opportunity in front of us right now that we are completely ignoring. Um, just recently, the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi was in Australia and in a press conference with Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, he said, we are willing to align the Belt and Road Initiative with the Northern Development Plan of Australia and the Innovation Driven Development Strategy with the National Innovation and Science Agenda of Australia. And he described Chinese efforts to work with Australia to, quote, make new contributions to the mutual benefit, win-win results and common prosperity of countries in the Asia Pacific region because see China has this whole Silk Road project they're building they want to cooperate with other countries but Australia has just shown no interest in this in fact Julie Bishop was more interested in trying to recruit China to the dead in the water TPP the Trans-Pacific Partnership so what should Australia be doing here Jeremy? Well we really need to work with China they're, they're our biggest trading partner and look there's so many advantages to work with China in, in terms of building high-speed trains mm. they, they're the biggest dam builder in the world there's more dam in China than the rest of the world combined. Hmm. And if we built this infrastructure in Australia, we will need some help from China. We, we don't really have that expertise in, for example, nuclear power. We've got the biggest reserves mm. of thorium and uranium, and we're not even using it. China's has got the biggest uh, program for nuclear power. They could help train our engineers. All sorts of possibilities to grow our nation. Mm, absolutely. And um, after the break, we want to talk a little bit more about how we can specifically do that and how we can fund that here in Australia to get it underway as part of this post-West uh, illiberal order. Welcome back to the CEC report. Australia needs a new bank, but not a green one. So today we're talking, Jeremy, about the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and it's been in the news lately, Jeremy. Um, what is this institution and what's the discussion underway? It's a government bank, and, and that's great. You know, we, we want a government bank. But the problem is, is it's specifically financing so-called green energy, mostly wind power and solar power, large-scale solar power. And in the, the legislation, they are not allowed to invest any funds into nuclear power or anything to do with coal. So they can't even invest into carbon capture and storage, which the government at the moment wants to change the rules okay. so that they can invest into carbon capture and storage, which means that if you have a coal-fired power plant, 
uh, the emissions, instead of going up into the atmosphere, get pumped deep underground. The carbon dioxide gets pumped deep underground, which is an insane idea. So why is that an insane idea? Just explain that. Well, <laughs> if you think about the, the way uh, coal burns is you, you run the, the air through and mostly air is nitrogen. So you run the, the air through and the oxygen in the air burns with the, the carbon and the coal. Mm -hmm. And then all the, the flue gases go up, which is mostly nitrogen because the nitrogen basically doesn't burn. Uh, so you have to separate out that nitrogen out of the flue gases. You have to pump this carbon dioxide deep underground. Now the problem is, is carbon dioxide is one part carbon, two parts oxygen. That's mm. carbon dioxide. CO2. Yeah, and there's yeah. two O's in there. <laughs> so by mass, yeah. there's, there's um, nearly three quarters of carbon dioxide is really oxygen. So it'd be better calling mm. it uh, an oxygen burial program mm. than a carbon burial Which program. Which is the opposite of what we really would want. Yeah. Um. Uh, and, and it's very, very expensive. Uh, you know, pumping this... CO2 deep underground, you know, kilometres underground, it takes a lot more energy to pump it down. Uh, some estimate that it'll require twice as much coal to be burnt mm. to produce the same amount of electricity. <laughs> uh, it's ridiculous. Mm. It'll cost $52 billion. And then ongoing costs $5 billion a year or something like that to keep yeah, yeah. continuing the 52 process. $52 billion if half, oh, okay, for of, half our of Australia's coal fired power stations. Um, so that's one estimate. And an extra five billion in ongoing costs. Ridiculous. Um, so it's not surprising, Jeremy, that right. investment bankers figured out this strategy, mm -hmm. this plan. Tell mm -hmm. us about the role mm -hmm. of Macquarie Bank in this outfit. The uh, executive and the board uh, has uh, several Macquarie or former Macquarie bankers uh, on the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and you know some pretty notable ones, including you know, very senior executives. Uh, we've had Oliver Yates, he's the CEO. Uh, he was the former executive director at Macquarie Bank for more than 10 years. He was the country head of the United States. Uh, you've, you've got uh, also people on the, um, <coughs> the uh, Wentworth group of concerned scientists who actually shut down our uh, Murray-Darling Basin. Uh, they, they were campaigning to take away water from farmers. Mm. Uh, so a lot of these green frauds, uh, but these Macquarie bankers, the problem is, is Macquarie has, has a history, they're called the Millionaire Factory, yeah. and there's a good reason for that. Uh, not only do they make millions of dollars, they screw everyone else through things such as toll roads and yep. all these public-private partnership programs. It's looting the general welfare of the population. Mm. And isn't it interesting that they're willing to overlook the liberal market economic theory mm -hmm. that governments should not be involved in banking mm -hmm. for this green agenda? So what mm -hmm. should this bank really mm -hmm. be funding, Jeremy? Well, we, we do need clean energy, and, and there is one clean energy, and that's nuclear power. Uh, if, if we look at the role of what China's doing now, they've got the biggest, enormous nuclear power program, and we can invest in that. It is clean, and you can reprocess the spent fuel so there's no waste problem. And we can call it a clean energy, fin energy finance corporation if you want to. Uh, we don't care, but invest in real energy, mm. not fake energy. Yeah, and this is similar actually to Franklin Roosevelt's um, Reconstruction and Finance Corporation, which was set up by Hoover to bail out the banks. And FDR took it over and said, we're going to use it to fund the rebuilding of America, which desperately needed to happen. And mm. you can read more about that in this Australian Alert Service. Go to our website to find out more. Give us a call to get involved. 
Thanks for tuning into the CEC Report. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Elisa. And join us again next week on the CEC Report.